On this week's Behind the Idea, we look at the value still left in General Motors shares, or the lack thereof. We hit on a lot of questions raised about the company by essay author Blue Pacific. Mike takes a look at the company's share buyback program. When is it actually okay to buy back shares? When things are going well, your stock price is going to be high because things are going well. But you're not supposed to buy back expensive shares because that's value destroying. But then when shares are cheap, unless you're a company like Berkshire Hathaway, then you're out of luck there too. So what's management supposed to do? Are they supposed to just not ever buy back shares so that no one makes fun of them? I then talk about Bull's Hope based on SoftBank's investment in GM's cruise division. SoftBank has invested in a lot of silly companies and a lot of silly things. And I know that that there can be differences in the quality of signal. Like there can be, SoftBank may be able to make really dumb investments and really smart investments. But this is something I think there's a lot of this sort of people who orient as value investors or smart money or fundamental investor, whatever else, will be really good about pointing out bubbles and pointing out this is crazy and then turn around and say, but actually this same indicator is really good for this one case. GM is an industrial giant that has hit a lot of twists and turns in the road over the past century. Is it about to find a straightaway or are dangerous curves ahead? We discuss on today's Behind the Idea. But first, a special message from Mike. I just want to start off this podcast with a special shout out to all our listeners. The people who give us positive feedback and rave about how great Behind the Idea is. And also the people who tell us we should stop podcasting, not podcast at all, that we don't have enough expertise, enough skin in the game, or enough perspective on financial markets to be talking about these names. To the people who give us positive feedback, that makes us feel great. And to the people who criticize us, we love you too. Thank you for listening and for giving us feedback. You know, we feel marvelous. We love it. And we love the engagement. So, you know, if you want to stop by, call us dingbats. Just stop on by. Call us dingbats. We're here for it. We're two people who love talking about stocks, and we're going to keep doing it. For those of you who give us positive feedback, thank you. That's all we ask is a few compliments here and there. This is free content. We're not charging you for it. That's supported by Seeking Alpha, a company whose mission is to generate conversation about investing ideas. Okay, so disclaimer over. Except for one other thing, I just want to say that Daniel and I are real people, not actors, and that's going to be relevant for today's show. All right. Welcome to Behind the Idea where we break down ideas from the Seeking Alpha ecosystem to find out what makes analysis work. I'm Mike Taylor. And I'm Daniel Schwartzman. Today we're talking about General Motors. Daniel, what's the ticker symbol for General Motors? That would be GM, Mike. Ticker symbol GM. This famous automaker trades cheaply on an earnings basis, but management has had some missteps in the past couple years. And cyclical stocks can often trick investors who are looking for value. Seeking Alpha author Blue Pacific takes a dive into the accounting and raises some potential red flags. The theme of today's episode is, how does a blue chipper keep up with the pace car of technological change on the racetrack of industry competition? So Daniel, what's going on here? First of all, let me just add as a disclosure that I actually am long Ford. So I do have some, I hardly any expertise, but some skin in the game. And I'm curious about the car companies. It wasn't a position that I opened. It was, I, I started managing the account afterwards, but just get that disclosure out of the Whoa. way. Throw the previous manager under the bus. The previous- yeah, I'll also disclose, uh, I have no positions in any automakers because I'm not stupid. The previous manager opened the position at three, so I don't think there's any need for him to feel oh. bad about the decision. It was a big; it's been okay. a big winner. That's part of the makes it harder to figure out how to manage it. 
You're just letting it ride. Okay. What else should we say? We should also say that Seeking Alpha is a website where investment analysts from around the world share their views and ideas. Okay. So now let's talk about GM, Dan. So the article here, GM, I think is widely taken as a value stock right now. It's got a low price to earnings multiple. It's easily contrasted with Tesla. The most facile comparison is on market cap and people will sort of compare their two market caps. I think Tesla's was higher recently before it dropped with a lot of the recent goings on with Elon Musk and with the company. But Tesla is obviously an emerging company. Whatever opinions we might have, it's clearly not as established as GM. And in theory, it has certain prospects for its future, whereas GM is kind of a stable, profit-churning, huge company with sales around the world and so forth. Blue Pacific's point, though, is quite laser-focused here on a few things. First of all, it appears cheap, but earnings aren't really growing. It's been the same earnings for the last three years, and he posts a cone at the beginning about how if you're at the same adjusted earnings for multiple years and the stock price doesn't move, it's probably because you're not growing those earnings or you're not or you're not even harvesting the earnings. You're spending to try to maintain the earnings, but you're not getting anything out of that. And of course, these are adjusted earnings. So without going into the adjustments, they're adjusted earnings. The company has spent a lot of money on share repurchases over the last few years, but that hasn't boosted the share price. It may have retired some shares, but it's unclear that what's, what's that doing to the balance sheet of GM except that debt is increasing and cash is declining. If you look at Blue Pacific's first table, shows General Motors debt growing, net debt growing over the last two and a half years, which has now put it in a much more significant net debt position than either of its two main competitors, Ford or Fiat Chrysler. From there, Blue Pacific calls out that guidance has been missed a few times, Adjusted free cash flow expectations have been ratcheted down a few times, and the company hasn't been out in front of this. Ford is also, he, the author cites as a comparison, Ford has noted rising commodity costs. It's lowered its guidance sort of proactively to a degree, whereas GM has been a step or two behind, it seems. So there's questions about the management uh their finger on the pulse of their business there or their forthrightness in facing up to it. Um, the CFO and the chief accounting officer left and there were some strange accounting changes, just these small things in the disclosure elements that the author picks up, including something around the China joint venture. And the China joint venture is a huge source of free cash flow right now. And that's also kind of, there's some indications in their guidance and in what's going on that that might not be so consistent, which could also be a threat to GM's free cash flow in coming quarters and years. And the last sort of big point that Blue Pacific makes is that when you get down to it, GM does a really nice job of breaking down their different sales, cars, trucks, and crossover vehicles but all the profit right now is from trucks. So GM really is, they're not, or all of the growing profit is from trucks and they're kind of declining in the other categories, which also isn't really what you want. I think he at some point, either in the article or in a comment afterward, talks about a three-legged stool and now only one leg is really standing up. And so that's, it's not a short case per se, but it raises to me a lot of pertinent questions about GM, about how they've spent their excess cash, about how their sales are doing. He talks about the SoftBank, which we'll get into, made an investment in their cruise division. Cruise is their automated self-driving unit, self-driving technology unit. And SoftBank made an investment, but he argues that it's been 
overstated how important that investment is. He also throws some nice shade about their European department and how that was a loss for GM for a long time, but has suddenly become profitable since GM sold it off. So that was kind of a... So he throws a lot of shade at GM and raises a lot of questions about how they're doing, which I think calls into question whether this is really not even just the value stock versus value trap, but whether this is such a, is this really all it's made out to be? And so that's, that's sort of the article and that's the argument. So what do you, what sort of stands out to you from that argument or what, what's interesting to you? Well, first I think GM and Ford and, you know, I just see on Twitter, there are a lot of investors and the sort of meme going around in the past couple of weeks has been, there are sort of two markets right now. And one market is the, the things that trade at 10 times sales, which are these huge growth stocks and tech stocks. And then the things that trade for uh, 10 times earnings, which are the value stocks. And obviously the growth stocks are really expensive and they've just been winning over and over year and year and year and value has been getting crushed for years now and those are the pe of 10 stocks and then in particular with any industrials or automakers that have traded cheaply i just see people uh sort of live tweeting the earnings calls and complaining about how much it hurts that they bought this thing at five times earnings something like ford or gm and they're still in pain. And uh, I think you and I probably both have a couple of positions that sort of fit this. It's cheap and stayed cheap or got cheaper. Meanwhile, the broad market is just sort of blowing past these stocks. So I just think it's an interesting dynamic to explore given that something that might have been traditionally cheap, there's sort of an evolving a next step that I think Blue Pacific is taking here and getting into the details. So I think that's one, that's sort of just a general point that we wonder whether the growth story is working out and companies trading at 10 times sales is sustainable, whether we're in sort of a new investment environment where value just doesn't work anymore. And I think what's cool about this article is it points out why a cheap stock might be cheap in a very convincing way. So that's one thing. And then the second thing that I really like here is to sort of talk about the capital allocation decisions that a company faces, especially a blue chip company like GM, when things aren't going great. So, you know, earnings have been challenged. The company's had a difficult time meeting expectations in the past couple of years. Meanwhile, it's spending a fair proportion of its free cash flow buying back shares. And I think companies are in a dilemma some investors kind of make fun of the fact that there are these academic studies saying that management's really bad at buying back shares. They tend to initiate buybacks when the stock price is high and they never buy back shares when the stock price is low. In fact, sometimes they have to sell shares when the stock price is low. And I just want to, you know, <laughs> I think one theme on this call is I may turn out to be a little bit more sympathetic to management in a couple of different spots here. But one place I sympathize with management is when is it actually okay to buy back shares? So when things are going well, your stock price is going to be high because things are going well, but you're not supposed to buy back expensive shares because that's value destroying. But then when shares are cheap, unless you're a company like Berkshire Hathaway or some other company that is so cash rich or generates so much free cash flow that it actually can finance substantial share repurchases when things are not going well, then you're out of luck there too. So what's management supposed to do? Are they supposed to just not ever buy back shares so that no one makes fun of them? I don't think that's right. With respect here to GM, I think there's an additional concern with the share buybacks, which is what do you do when you're in this spot where there's technological change and innovation going around and GM has these new growth initiatives that are designed to kind of keep up with autonomous driving and other electric vehicles and other innovations that are taking place in the industry. 
how do you juggle the need for this new research and development against this need to deliver the returns from your successful business back to shareholders? So I think cyclically, there's a question about the wisdom of share buybacks. And I also think in terms of a structural change that GM also has to cope with right now, there's a question on capital allocation there. So that's a rich sort of area for me. And I just like that people in the peanut gallery like you and me can kind of make fun of management no matter what they do with respect to share repurchases. Well, and I think share repurchases are almost, they're, they're, they're like a chimera. They're like a cancer this, on society. Have no. you been reading a lot of op-eds lately? Well, but I think that too, like that whole conversation about the share buybacks as being this evil thing, like share buybacks are kind of, it's moving water from one bucket to another. And I think it's, so when a, Apple can buy back shares because they've got tons of money and there's, it's a very hard experiment to think about what would a scenario be where Apple was short of cash? You would have to really model out something severe. And so once you have this excess cash, then fine, a share buyback or whatever else you want to do, there's something you can do to, it, it, it doesn't make a huge difference, dividend, share buyback, whatever else. And it's the same with the, with the societal thing. Like on the one hand, it, it's President not Ocasio Cortez comes to power. <laughs> or she looks right. at Apple's balance sheet and she says, "Okay, you're done. <laughs> We're taking it." <laughs> uh, I don't. The point is that I think you can make arguments that tax rates should be proportionate to the fact that the share buybacks are eventually circling around, usually around shareholders and shareholders tend to be better off. And there's ways to set tax rates accordingly. And, uh-huh. but I don't think, I don't think the CapEx, the fact that companies are spending or not spending CapEx is reflective of economic cycles and not of, not necessarily of they're trying to hide money from, from workers or whatever else. I think there are other problems that are, potentially depressing wages. And this is off topic. We're, we're not going to make convincing economic arguments if we can't even talk stocks well. But I think share buybacks, to go back to GM, if GM was doing well, then the share buybacks, okay, fine. You retire shares and you're doing well and your earnings are growing. But if you're not growing earnings or more to the point, I think of GM, if you're in a cyclical business and if you are in a business that is constantly changing, technology, whatever the definition you use of technology, the auto industry does not stand still. It's always got new things coming out. There's always a lot of competition. And your GM, you were bankrupt a decade ago. That's where I think you get to, okay, what is my true excess cash? When do I really have so much cash that I can start thinking of excess returns to shareholders? And that's where I think it goes to. So it's not to me a question of are share bar buybacks in and of themselves smart or not? Are they useful capital allocation or not? It's in GM situation, they've got a lot of other things going on, including the fact that they're a cyclical business and that everybody and their brother has been aware of the auto cycle peaking a year or two ago what's your best use of capital in that situation? So I guess that's where I think the share buyback situation is interesting. I just want to piggyback on that, especially your mention of the auto cycle by saying that a year or two ago, you and I were talking about the peak auto cycle and I just brought up the graph again and total auto sales in the U S have been flat for, you know, about that time, 18 months, let's just say. And if you would have sold GM right around that flattening time, you would have missed out potentially on another 50% gain in the stock price, which I think to me illustrates, you know, we're bad investors, we're bad economists, but those, when you have a parlay of those two things of how the economy is going to do and how the share price is going to react, hard to find an edge there. And certainly we didn't have a great grasp of what was going to come next. 
And I think that's part of the trick of this cyclical thing. Like you never really know when a stock like GM is cheap or expensive unless potentially you unearth some issues with management conduct or some truly boneheaded decision making that uh, reveals the stock to be overvalued, uninvestable based on the future prospects and what you can infer based on the sort of bungling that management may be doing with the assets. So maybe that can get us back to the Blue Pacific article. What were some of these flags and what did you think of them, Daniel? So the flags are, let's just, so we're moving beyond just the fact that the business itself, the debt, the share buybacks, we have, you know, this is the stuff that everybody likes to say. They read the footnotes really closely. They read the, the filings really closely to spot these things, but it's always fascinating. I don't know how many of us really do it. And it's always fun when somebody does it and comes up with something. And so, Blue Pacific first calls out that they changed the way that they're accounting for vehicles that they transfer to daily rental car companies, which led to an increase in revenues by 1.1 billion, an increase in automotive gross margins by 100 basis points, and income before taxes increased by nearly 40% in Q1 of this year. So that's kind of a whether or not that's a before we go into the legitimacy that's quite a nice flattering boost to the bottom line yeah i love that yeah you gotta love when uh an accounting change the change of an, a treatment of an item boosts your revenues by such a substantial amount what do you think of so what do you think of that when this happens daniel i think it i think it matters I think it does affect shareholder perceptions because I'm not sure I'm with you that not everyone is up on what decision accounting decision changes that aren't really reflective necessarily of what the underlying business is doing. I think that does affect what investors think. How much like weight would you give something like that if you were trying to figure out whether stock was mispriced or whether the market was really fully understanding a situation? I don't think I would have spotted this. So if I was looking at GM, my hope would be, and I we, I don't think we reviewed the filings to see how they disclosed it. My hope would be that they then adjusted backwards so that you have comparables. And so in theory, if they boosted first quarter revenues for 2018, they also did for 2017. And so I'm not, it's not suddenly found money if nothing has actually changed except how you're accounting for things. Right, um, right. But yeah, it's, I mean, that's a lot of money, right? And that's what we're looking for. Yeah, $1.1 billion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, gross margins changed by 100 basis points, with it, which in a, um, a company with a lot of operating leverage, asset-heavy company like GM is going to make a huge difference in terms of investor perceptions and uh, EBT of 40%. So those accounting changes are... So that's one thing. That's And then... Maybe let's get into the next thing that I really, I just want to talk a little bit. Amid these accounting changes, GM had some management turnover that Daniel mentioned at the beginning, introducing this idea. And I just want to kind of talk about the figure of the heroic accountant, because I think that none of this is comment about GM specifically, although we'll tell the story of GM, but just... Imagine that you're a CFO at a giant company or even just a medium-sized company, and you're there for years, you know, four or five years, and you're pulling down a C-level salary for that time, and you get stock compensation as well, and so you become fairly wealthy fairly quickly. But then, you know, one day, others in the C-suite or whoever propose some changes to the accounting and the way you treat revenues and the way you treat net income. And you're, you know, you're not completely comfortable with that. You're not completely on board. You, you're very thankful that through your 10B5 program, you've been selling stock in the company during its meteoric rise over the past several years. And 
you help prepare the final financial statements that include the accounting change. And then a couple weeks later, you just resign. And you basically resign with your reputation completely intact. And someone else has to come in and address the issues created by management and their accounting policy. I'm proposing this hypothetical scenario because I think it's interesting that I kind of, when I see an accountant resigning, Mm -hmm. I sort of default to the idea that the other members of the senior management team are somehow at fault. And it's this (laughs) valiant person who's discovered, wait, we're accounting for, no, no, sir. Rental car, one day rental car sales are not revenue. I... I hereby tender my resignation and then they sort of bravely throw their folder on the boardroom table and then they run out of the building and they go move to the Bahamas or whatever. That's what I what came to mind when I thought of this story. Do these stories, what are these, what should we take away from stories of senior management team departures, especially in the accounting department? Because, you know, we talk about Tesla. That's another example uh, where Certain key personnel seem to have been leaving at regular intervals. How do you interpret this? We'll get into the specific story of GM maybe in a minute. But Daniel, what do you think just generally about management departures, especially accountants? So I think it's hard to, there's going to be a lot of errors of commission by assuming that every, you know, some CFOs want to retire. The CFO was 58, it says he had a noteworthy 40-year career in our news story. He's due to officially retire. Wait, 40-year? <laughs> so apparently he started when he was 18. That's at 18? <laughs> hey, that's what they do in, in Michigan. They just go to work at the factory, and then that's you start from there. Oh, he was a factory worker? Uh, anyway, I mean, yeah. The people I mean, start work. They just start working. It's Michigan. Yeah. They work. It's, a, it's Mr. hard. Mr. Stevens. Then. He went to work, according to CNBC, he went to work for Buick in 1978, which was 40 years ago. So I I assume he didn't jump straight to the books, but who knows? Maybe maybe they needed him on the books right away. Anyway, well, that is, I guess maybe that is heard of in Michigan. It's very alien to me in the media industry. Staying at a place for 40 months is a pretty (laughs) remarkable achievement in our line of work. But anyway, you're saying, so you just like, it's hard to know, right? It's hard to know what was going on or whether the departure says anything particular about the company, unless you have more information. So right. he put in his 40 years. Yeah. And maybe and in, he's good. Maybe in he's theory, good. in theory, that could have been all there was. But what I think is, what I think Blue Pacific does a nice job of to go back to their work. Okay, wait. So let's just back up for a second. Let's just get the story. Let's just get Charles Stevens, the 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 tale of Charles Stevens out there. So, okay, this is I'm I'm sort of reading slash paraphrasing from Blue Pacific's report here. But on June twelfth, twenty eighteen, the Securities and Exchange Commission sent a letter asking for additional information with respect to the accounting change. That's the accounting change that increased revenues by one point one billion dollars, including the decision on how to book transactions with one-day car dealers. So June 12th, SEC says, hey, what's going on with this change? June 13th, 2018, General Motors announced that its chief financial officer, Charles Stevens, our hero, was retiring. Mr. Stevens is 58 years old. He's sold over 375,000 shares of stock, generating over $8 million in proceeds in the past 15 months. Prior to those sales, he had sold less than 2,000 shares in the previous five years combined. Note, and this is Blue, Blue, Blue Pacific again, Blue Pacific believes the timing of the SEC letter referred to in point three and the timing of Mr. Stevens' resignation is most likely coincidental. We created this list in chronological order, etc. So our hero, Mr. Stevens, presides over the accounting change. The company gets a letter from the SEC saying, hey, guys, we have questions about this. And then next day, bang, Mr. Stevens, 40 years in the business, retires. I like Blue Blue Pacific think this is just a coincidence. You don't just retire the next day after getting a letter from the SEC necessarily. We don't have any information about it, but I just, it goes back to my, and now that I know that he started working for the company as a young 18-year-old 
Michigander, probably, <laughs> and then worked his way up to the C-suite. It just is even more this just heroic story of a, a C-level executive presiding over something and then finishing up and $8 million richer heading off into the sunset. But but so what, what I like about Abu Pacific, he's not, he's just asking questions as it were, but he also then throws in a little bit of, he reminds the reader how much money Mr. Stevens would have earned had he not sold his shares early, but instead waited until the stock reached a $60 share price, which is just one of those, it's hypothetical, but. Yeah. What's he doing there? <laughs> what is that? <laughs> I think it's just stirring the pot a little bit. It's just stirring the pot of, look, if you believe that GM has this great value, presumably you're going to hold it. It's total. It's Stevens with his iPhone on the beach in Tahiti going, oh, no, what did I do? (laughs) It's just. But again, this is in the context of GM being a cyclical company. It's in the context of all these great changes coming to the industry. And so it's just stirring the pot, I think. I, I don't think, but I think it's, I guess what I'd say is this. If it were just a random, C, you know, CFOs leave, that's fine. And like we said, 40 years. But when you have these accounting changes, and then the other example, which is that the chief accounting officer ended up responding to that SEC letter and... Yeah, left. it makes me wonder how well Stevens and uh, his name's Thomas Timko. I wonder. He's like, he's like, thanks a lot, Chuck. <laughs> it's like in Succession where the guy uh, he assumes control of the division, and the guy who's on his way out, who everyone loves, he's like the manager of the year, five times running. He takes the guy aside into the office and says, uh, "There's been criminal rampant activity in this division for years." Well, see ya. <laughs> Obviously, I'm not saying that GM has been doing anything criminal, but I just like thinking about this dynamic of this changeover happening and just sort of Timco has to pick up the baton. Like here's on his way out, he's just like drops the SEC letter in the guy's inbox and is like, see ya. Well, but then so then Timco leaves right after that, right? He he. He tells the company that he's leaving on July 24th. There's an earnings call on July 25th. He's there to help answer questions. July 26th, they file the 8K. And again, we I can point to Tesla. Tesla has had similar things happen over the past few months, but everybody has talked about it. It's all over Twitter. It's all in the discussions. The the bulls are saying it's are just ignoring it or saying it's not a big deal. The bears are saying. This is, again, more signs that everything is a mess at Tesla. But nobody is... I I haven't seen anything about this, about GM. Even though the author posted this article, has tweeted about it. Outside of that, I haven't really seen a lot of discussion. We didn't file... And this is not criticism of our news team. It's an example, I think, of investor interest and focus. We didn't have any news post for the chief accounting officer leaving, as best as I can tell. And so... There's this scrutiny that's placed on Tesla, but GM is also having issues going on. And yeah, and it's not, it could just be random noise. It could be that they both had full careers and they wanted to leave. And it just happened that Timco was the first guy to step in, but he was also planning to leave. Like that's all possible, but it's not a, it's not super reassuring to me either. And I think Blue Pacific was, it was justified to call attention to these odd happenings that also coincided with the departures of these executives. Yeah. I just, I guess, do we know who's in there now? No, not from the report maybe, but we, we know that. Well, I I saw the new CFO is a younger, younger woman stepping in, uh, I think of I think Chuck may actually Chuck may actually be leaving <laughs> Mark Charles right Charles Stevens yeah <laughs> you Chuck. don't have a choice if your name's Charles look, look unless you've been at GM for forty years since the age of eighteen you call him Mister Stevens <laughs> Chaz Chaz is there Chaz, until Chazzy baby <laughs> March first of next year but there's a new CFO coming in 
the young younger CFO. I think she's only thirty nine, and and so that's that's somebody stepping in. I don't know who's coming in for the CAO, and it's again, it's not this the thing for because this isn't necessarily a short idea, and the thing for Longs is not is there something terrible going on, but if there was something great going on, would this have happened? I think you don't necessarily need to establish a negative to raise questions about the positive. Yeah. Yeah. I think, and we should, we're, we're having fun with this. I just want to reiterate that we don't know what's going on and there's no real basis for us to believe that anything untoward is happening here. I just want to reiterate that we're just having fun with this dynamic of what's going on and trying to sort of imagine what it's like to be in these positions where you have to make such sort of high level and difficult decisions and you have to manage this type of turnover. That's the real, that's the real thing here, but it is ammo for a kind of the rest of the short thesis, I think, or not short thesis, sorry, for the rest of the thesis. So let's talk about some of the other things that are going on here. There's this China joint venture discussion. What did you think of of that piece, Daniel? I didn't really take a lot away from it, but I think maybe you have something there. I think just with the China joint venture, I think the two things are that China auto sales are falling. Uh, we have a news story from, when is it? A September saying that China auto sales fell for the second straight month in August. And sales at the joint venture fell 4%, according to the news, while sales at another joint venture dropped 6%. So GM is really dependent on China. I don't know if I would want to be really dependent on China at a time where trade tensions are continuing to build between the U.S. and China. And and then there was also just, it's one of those curious things that, again, I think 99% of investors for all that they talk about studying the books, and I would include myself in this, probably would not have picked up on the fact that GM did not file the exhibit of the SGM audited financial statements on their 2017 10K, even though they have on the two previous years. And so, again, it's just enough to make you wonder. There's there's a few other sort of implications about what the sales are going to be and everything else but it's it's enough to make you think that not all is well on that front as well and that front is really important for gm right now and so that's another big uh, another piece to this thesis i also just wonder how hard is it how hard is it to do this accounting and get it right? How hard is it to manage these multiple business lines? For Tesla, it's kind of like, okay, this is a new company. They're building this from uh, scratch. But, but for GM, it's a mature company. You would think they have their act together and that they're focused on profitability and they're doing things. You know, They should have, over however many years they've been in existence, figured out how to deal with these kind of things. But I think that the business is actually very complex. You think of GM as just having factories in the U.S. making cars, but it's an international corporation. Uh, they you know, had dealings in Europe, and now they have dealings in China. And it's not necessarily straightforward to account for all these things or to manage all these different operations. All right, so let's talk about sort of the last piece of this puzzle, I think, is... Um, you know, in addition to cyclical changes and vulnerability to the U.S. auto market, there's a secular shift going on here. And there's, you know, that necessitates some technological exploration on GM's part. Blue Pacific talks a little bit about those dynamics. There's some soft bank involvement. So, Daniel, why don't you sort of give your take on this last piece of the puzzle and the, the changing economy and the, the pace car of competition and driven by Adam Smith himself, the ghost of Adam Smith. What's going on here? So I think the auto industry in general, there's a lot of uncertainty, which is why you have Ford trading at cheap multiples, why you have GM, Fiat, Chrysler, all trading at cheap multiples. I mean, they each have their own problems and they each have their own specific things going on. Uh, GM has actually got the most stable management picture now because of 
uh, Sergio Marchionne dying and Ford having management changeovers. But the situation right now is you have self-driving technology, you have ride-sharing, you have Uber and Lyft and that sort of expansion of the just hop in a car. You have the questions over whether young people are interested in buying a car the way they used to be. And you have companies like Google with Waymo, which is, I think, considered the leader in this space. You have companies... Apple is exploring car dynamics, and then you have electric cars and Tesla. And so you have a lot going on, a lot of changes, a lot of, it seems like cars will be different 15 to 20 years from now than they are now in really fundamental ways, whether it's the engines they run on, whether it's the, whether it's the way we own them, whether it's who's driving them, whether it's automation or whatever else. And it, it, we will probably overrate how fast that happens, but that change is likely to happen. And none of those things are particularly interesting for me to invest in, I think. I think when you talk about the original car companies, you think of how few of them lasted. And you think about the old thing that Warren Buffett said that we quoted when we talked about Delta, about how it would have been great if somebody shot Wilbur and Orville out of the sky from an investing perspective. When you have a new technology coming in and you have a lot of competitors and a lot of really good companies, I mean, I don't really want to compete with Google and Apple, for example. That's not really exciting to me, even if they're kind of interlopers in this space. And all of that makes it seem to me like autos are not that obvious a bet as is, even though I hold Ford shares. And then you also have the angle that I think, I think that's, you know, there's a lot to be debated there, and I'm not going to walk away from the whole industry just based on that comment. But then there's also the thing that bulls will sometimes point to SoftBank's investment in Cruise, GM's Cruise division, as a positive sign. And Blue Pacific addresses it by saying, look, SoftBank actually structured that really smartly so they get paid a lot sooner than GM does out of that deal, essentially. And... That's, that's, that's I think, an important point. But also, SoftBank has invested in a lot of silly companies and a lot of silly things. And I know that, that there can be differences in the quality of signal. Like, there can be... SoftBank may be able to make really dumb investments and really smart investments. But this is something I think there's a lot of this sort of... People who orient as value investors or smart money or fundamental investor, whatever else, will be really good about pointing out bubbles and pointing out this is crazy and then turn around and say, but actually this same indicator is really good for this one case. And so SoftBank has invested $9.3 billion in Uber. And Uber, to me, seems like a really overvalued company, whether or not they succeed. $300 million in the dog walking service WAG and $4.4 billion in WeWork, which is seems like one of the more bubbly companies out of there. And these all seem like kind of crazy investments. So I'm not so sure that them investing $2.3 billion or whatever the actual number is in, in GM is supposed to make me feel good. I don't know why that would be the case. And so I think there's this, the other example to me that's the most obvious is overstock and Bitcoin, where we can, on the one hand, point to Bitcoin as this crazy bubble, but overstock's going to do blockchain better. And so I'm going to actually pony up for shares. Like, I don't think that's how it works. I don't think that's, I, I know that you can get into the particulars and that it's not necessary to paint everything with a broad brush, but that seems to me like, a lot of logical inconsistencies. So I don't know that, that really just, I think that I guess that's what frustrates me is I think there's a logical inconsistency in investors who know better about most of SoftBank's investments, but then say, Oh, this one's a good one. This one's a great sign for GM and I like GM. And therefore this is going, this is further proof. You know, it's endowment bias, it's confirmation bias, whatever else, but it just, it, 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 uh, and I'm sure I do it all the time in my investing. I say that I like clean balance sheets, but then I'm attracted to my biggest position as a company that has a lot of debt. So like, I'm not saying that I'm 
innocent here, but it's still, as a somewhat outside observer in this case, it still strikes me as odd. I don't know. What do you think? I just rambled. I, I think that it, I don't like very often when the big boy the big boy argument, like this big major investor is in this stock because you don't know necessarily their time frame, their interest, their strategy, how it fits all together with the rest of their portfolio or the nature of the position. I think the point about the preferred or the cap structure here is important. And Blue Pacific mentions that, you know, SoftBank is going to get paid out well before GM gets paid out, according to Blue Pacific's analysis of the situation. So I wouldn't blindly accept SoftBank's presence as bullish for the growth venture. Uh, I am also skeptical, maybe like you, of the valuation of growth properties, giving market multiples to them. You know, Google with Waymo, we have some people saying Waymo by itself is worth X and justifies Google's valuation by itself. I'm not so, so sure we have the information for all of that. And so I think it's a piece of information, but I would not weight it heavily. I don't think it's necessarily misguided to look at it, but I it's a very low information content to me, I think. SoftBank being in, in GM's uh, cruise venture. Well, the, the other thing I would just add too quickly is that I, when Uber was really gaining prominence and we had a medallion financial became a battleground on seeking alpha. It used to have the ticker symbol taxi. It's now MFIN and it was a big battleground. And I think there was a lot of this sort of people took it personally to some degree that Uber was coming into the taxi business. And also they said, look, taxi, this Uber's going to be regulated or Uber's going to, is a bubble or whatever else. And I think it's possible. It's sort of a kamikaze mission sometimes. Like it's possible that, that Uber will be crazily overvalued for a long time. That doesn't necessarily mean if anything, that's a point against its competitors, because if they're crazily overvalued, they can then use that to compete me out of existence. And I think that's, yeah, I like that. That's second level. Or maybe even third level game theory. Nice job. I think we make fun of game theory, but I think that's right. You shouldn't say that you, yeah, it feels a little bag holdery to be like, my legacy incumbent is cheap and your the market's just way overvaluing your new entrant. I feel like if you're saying that, you should probably step back for a second and double check your thinking because... It's actually the market is telling you in fairly unambiguous terms which competitor has the better growth prospects. So, yep, I'm with you on that. So how do we tie a bow on this? GM is a giant conglomerate automaker with a global presence. I think it's a difficult company to manage. And I think they're facing a couple headwinds, well pointed out by Blue, Blue Pacific. I still just default back a little bit to kind of liking the investment story anyway. Is that wild? What do you think, Daniel? I think that this is a really good illustration of the value of short sellers in the market. And Blue Pacific, again, did not make this as a short case. But if somebody did this for me on every stock that I owned... Gosh, I would, I would then know like that. I need to do my own work on this. I'm not saying I'm not abdicating the responsibility of doing my own research, but like this is, there's a value to seeing what the problems are. And so that, that would be one bow I would tie on this. The car industry to me does not, and it, it I have to evaluate my Ford thesis more closely and it, it's, I haven't paid it as much attention to it as I need to because it is a blue chip, because it's a great brand, because it hasn't gone bankrupt, etc. And it's cat it, it has a there are differences. It is more upfront with its problems. Its balance sheet is a little bit stronger. But you know, I I go back to Michigan in summers and was there a few weeks ago and you know you see all the classic cars in Michigan, which is kind of funny. But also you read stories in the Detroit papers or 
I was listening to public radio, and there are plenty of questions about Ford. A low multiple is not an excuse for complacency, I guess would be where I would go. And an industry like this where you have entrance potentially like a Waymo, like an Apple, when you have Tesla attracting interest and capital, that's not necessarily there's no rule that you will that there will be winners. It could just be that everybody is a loser or that everybody gets competed out to a very meager profit level like there's no the airline industry lucked out to some degree by deregulation and mergers until they knocked out enough competitors so that it's a relatively more attractive business for the ones that are remaining and and Sergio Marchione was a big believer in merging with one of these other companies he felt I think he may have seen that that you need consolidation or something else to stabilize I guess I'm just saying that there's no the fact that Tesla is a crazy bubble, potentially, we'll save Has that. problems. We'll, it's crazy. We'll <laughs> save that discussion for some other time or for other people to deal with. But that does not mean that GM in and of itself is a great investment. I guess that's, that's to me, the message here is don't be complacent just because you can point to other stocks and say that's crazy. That still doesn't mean your investment isn't attractive. All right. I like that. There's no rule preventing us from being losers. I think that's an important. Everyone's a loser. If you on a long enough timeline, everyone is a loser. And then uh, we're all bag holders here. We're all bag holders in the end. Yeah. I also really liked your takeaway that a low multiple is not an excuse for complacency. Investing's hard. Managing an automaker's hard. And uh, at behind the idea, we all become losers in the end. So tune in next week. All right, Daniel, I think we're good. What do you think? I think we've I think we've fulfilled our mission here. All right. Sweet. Let's get off the track. Yeah. Bye <laughs> okay. bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Behind the Idea. We had a lot of fun with today's conversation and I hope you found it useful and thought provoking. Or at least that we cleared the dingbat level. If you have feedback, you can email us at btipod at seekingalpha.com. Also, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or Google Play. We're working on getting BTI on a few other platforms, so stay tuned for news. We're going to look at a growing bubble next week, so we hope you join us. This has been a Seeking Alpha production. Thank you for listening, and see you next time on Behind the Idea.